Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, uh, Christianity is declining in the West. Church membership, uh, especially since COVID, has declined very markedly and we find that more and more people are comfortable to say that they either don't believe in God or they are just not sure. One of the things that uh, people now say is, I believe in science. And it's a strange thing to say because science is not actually a thing, it's an approach to knowledge. Science comes up with uh, ideas, hypotheses, and it uh, observes and tests and experiments, and it sees whether it can sustain that original idea, prove it or disprove it. Now, of course, as technology becomes more advanced, uh, science changes. Well, actually not science. The approach to knowledge never changes, but what we can discover through that approach changes. So we were told not to wear masks, and then we were told to wear masks, and then we're told not to, you know, it changes. But not science doesn't change. The information that they gather through that approach uh, changes. So it's actually fine to say, I believe in science, That is, I have an approach to the world that looks for evidence, that wants to be rigorous, that seeks to prove what I believe. And in my mind, it is uh, more attractive to say I believe in science than to embrace this word of the year from 2016, post-truth. This was uh, coined, the Oxford Dictionary uh, chooses a word that has sort of come into play or really come into its own in a certain year, this certain year, a certain president um, in the US was stirring things up perhaps. And the observation was that we were living in a post-truth world. Post-truth relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We live in a very strange world where on the one hand we say, I believe in science, and on the other, we live in our social media or just media echo chambers where we are told what we already enjoy to believe, where we go with our tribe, where we are both suspicious of authority and yet claim the authority of science, where we reject experts and follow experts, we are living in a very confusing time. So when it comes to the Bible, it's hard, very hard, for us to have conversations both within the church and with those who don't go to church because we're all in this strange mix of disbelief and belief of evidence and emotion. 
But when it comes to the Bible, it's even more complex because we're not simply applying uh, historical method or the seeking of evidence to an historical document. We are coming to an historical document that makes very bold, great claims on our lives. So if you were reading a text, say Homer's Iliad uh, or, you know, um, an, a, a Greek philosophical text, uh, Caesar's Wars, whatever it is, um, you remain reasonably unmoved. It's interesting, learn something about humanity. But when it comes to another ancient text, the Bible, it makes such huge claims that it both stirs up that emotion and that desire to flee from objective truth and move to something that is much more comfortable, but also it places a very high burden of proof on this text which has such great claims on us. If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, I really need to know, is there historical evidence? Is there internal coherence? Is there a reason why I should listen to this text? Especially amongst all the other knowledge that is now at my fingertips. So these are some of the questions that perhaps you have asked, I have definitely asked, or people in your family or friends and our community and definitely on the internet are asking. An assertion, the Bible is a religious myth. Is there any historical evidence that Jesus even lived at all? There is definitely still some pockets out there that say Jesus was not even a real person. Can we address that? Weren't the books of the Bible written far too long after Jesus lived to be in any way based on historical fact? And haven't they been changed over the centuries? Well, we're going to look a little bit at that next week and a little bit this week. Even if Jesus did exist and some of the historical stuff happened, didn't the later church create this divine son of God, the one who's making these lofty claims out of just a special human being? That's pretty common, I think, thought. Yeah, Jesus is a good person, but the rest of it is just kind of religious accretion around this truth that he was a good dude. If Jesus was really the Messiah and was resurrected, why does everything go on as it always has? People have been saying that since uh, the New Testament was written. Well, if this is such an earth-shattering, world-changing event that happened in history, why does everything keep going on as it always has? So these are some of the questions, and you might even have more, that... I want to look at today. And the first thing to say is that the Bible welcomes your questions and your approach for evidence. 
Our text today from 1 Corinthians 15 speaks using both scientific uh, proof language and historical method language. So Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you. That chain of evidence or chain of custody, if you like, if you watch police procedurals. As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is something's happened that has evidence of its prediction centuries earlier and somehow mysteriously that seemed to point forward to this thing that's just happened. That is evidence in itself. And then that the raised Jesus appeared to named people and numbers of people. Kephas, Peter, Simon Peter, the apostle, who is alive at the writing of this, you can go and ask him. Then to the 12, ditto. After that, he appeared to more than 500, a bulk of evidence of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Yes, Paul says, it's okay to go and ask them questions, although some have died. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, that is another group, a wider group outside of the 12 that have been sent on the mission and set apart. And last of all, he appeared to me also, says Paul, as to one abnormally born. And then he goes on to speak very humbly that he didn't come to this knowledge or experience of Jesus uh, in power, but as an opposer of Jesus and in weakness. Questions of evidence are fine, actually, for the Bible, because it was really important to the apostles, to the writers of the New Testament, that people knew this was an historical event. This was not a spiritual something that had happened in their hearts. They were eyewitnesses to an event which could be researched and uh, put down on paper in an ordered way. So you have in 2 Peter, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, of course, you can say, well, anyone can say that. I was an eyewitness. Um, But, well, we'll find out how, how soon after was this written, and was there a possibility of contradiction? Luke, an historian or a doctor himself, uh, wrote many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This is at the start of Luke's gospel. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The Bible is actually quite ordered and expects the world itself to be ordered and to stand up to investigation, that God's truth should be able to be seen and understood and passed on using the type of methods that we would say, I believe in science. I really wanted to show you this great picture that I took on Thursday night. Uh, This is St. Paul's Cathedral, and uh, Phil and I uh, went to a a Melbourne Symphony 
performance here. And at the moment, in the cathedral, they have an art installation of the earth. And it's that big. This is not photoshopped or nothing. Uh, and it's kind of translucent and it's uh, lit from within and it turns. And so you just see the whole globe as it is seen from space, just sitting there turning uh, above the communion table and in this case, above the musicians. And uh, it was a really powerful moment for me to be sitting in this place where uh, many who were there would probably see it as a, a beautiful, transcendent, spiritual place, but one that is not very connected to the realities of our world. And yet here, right in the middle of it, is this world that the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But to compound this amazing connection, on the way into the cathedral, I was running late, no surprise, Phil was handed uh, two pieces of paper by a young man who had recently converted to Christianity, Coptic Orthodoxy. And the two photocopies, uh, one was this, so random, and the second was a list of titles of Jesus. And I have to say, the hurdle that it would take for someone normal to get something out of these photocopied pieces of paper uh, to move them towards Jesus was quite high. Funny thing though, this is exactly the material that I was about to explain to you today. <laughs> what it meant for this young man was that this is a list of the external sources that we have from archaeological discoveries, documents that speak about Jesus outside of the gospel accounts. He probably was very aware in himself that people view the scriptures with suspicion. And just because you've got four accounts of the life of this man called Jesus uh, in a religious book doesn't mean that you can actually believe that this man called Jesus was real or that anybody else thought he did stuff. But here, actually, we have the texts or the documents that have been discovered that uh, speak about Jesus outside of the New Testament. Really happy to give you the slides if you want. Mara Basarapion is, uh, was a writer who was thinking philosophically about life around AD 73. So we're talking 40 years after Jesus' death. And he was writing about how it's silly for authorities to try and kill off someone important because their work and legacy always lives on. So it was like, Aristotle lives on in Plato, da 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 da, da in him. And uh, look what happened. The Jews killed their wise king, uh, who gave a new law, but uh, they suffered the consequences. Uh, we think probably the, temp the, the uh, temple was destroyed. 
which is very much in his mind because it was around that time, uh, and his knowledge still remains. The teaching of the new law still remains. Now, he doesn't say this is Jesus, uh, but clearly this non-Christian author is saying there was a person called Jesus right around this time doing stuff. A wise king got killed. Josephus, who wrote, uh, who's a Jewish person, wrote some histories that Christians have found uh, so amenable to their cause that they have copied and copied and added a few little bits of their own. Uh, so you have to be really careful when you're using Josephus as a source or a reference because sometimes it's a later copy that Christians have made just even more clear what Josephus was talking about. But the earliest uh, references that we have that weren't with Christian editions speak about James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Tacitus, Roman writer, Christus, the founder of the name Christian, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. This is before the New Testament had been uh, fully set in its, um, you know, as a whole book. And so it's not like he was copying this from, uh, you know, the, the, the hotel Bible that he'd found left by the Gideons, even though it's AD 115. The Talmud, a Jewish reference, uh, a little later, 150 to 200, Yeshu was hanged on the eve of the Passover. And then uh, that was, Lucian was a new one to me that this uh, gentleman uh, gave to Phil, uh, who was writing about the Christians saying that they worship a man to this day who introduced their novel rites and these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then Thalos is a really early reference, but we've only got uh, that reference in a third century and then a seventh century um, document, who said, uh, I know there was darkness around the time of this Jesus crucifixion, but it was because there was a, uh, an eclipse. So it's nothing supernatural. Stop going on about it. So we do have documents, and you might think, oh, this is just a mention, but actually it's really important for us to know that there is uh, documentary evidence of the basic historical facts, that creed, that early creed that Paul says, you know, he died, he was buried, uh, and people followed him. We don't have a lot. We actually need to know. We don't have anything from Jesus' actual lifetime, you know, but we don't have anything. We don't have any document whatsoever from that time in that area about anything. We don't have a recipe. We don't have um, a legal tome. We don't have any documents. So if someone says, well, there's no documents from that time mentioning Jesus outside of the Gospels, yes, there's no, there's no documents that mention anything at all. We just don't have them. And also, the Bible itself portrays Jesus as a local prophet. He was an embodied person. He was a man in one space at one time. And he didn't seek fame. 
and his impact grew through the work of the Holy Spirit as the gospel was shared in word and deed in the centuries following his death. The evidence that we have as it becomes more um, uh, numerous in the centuries after his death absolutely recognises the fact that Jesus the man did one thing, but it required the gift of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church to see that grow. Sorry, forgot to say, warning, this is a little bit gross. <laughs> what you're seeing here is other sorts of external evidence for what happened in that time. This is not Jesus' bone, but this is a bone from a little earlier than Jesus' time showing crucifixion through the heel. What happened was uh, if the uh, authorities allowed the families of crucified victims to have the body, sometimes they didn't and they just left them up there and the birds had at it, um, but if they did or they buried them in a kind of criminal's spot, then uh, once the flesh had gone, uh, they would collect the bones and then keep them in a ossuary, a bone box, which then could be kept, you know, sort of in the family area. So this was from an ossuary discovered in Jerusalem in 1968, and it shows this person had been crucified, and this, the nail went right through the heel. And you can see, couldn't have come out because it, it got absolutely hammered in there at the base so that it hooked around. This, I don't know if you've seen this before. Anyone seen this graffiti, early Roman anti-Christian graffiti before? This says, um, Alex, Alex Menos worships his God. And you've got a little figure here with his arms raised in Hillsong worship. And then you've got his God, a donkey-headed figure on a cross. This was discovered in, a, uh, in 1857 in a Roman house uh, that had been sealed up and so it was very well preserved. This is something rude that has been drawn about Christians. What a stupid thing to do, to worship a crucified man. What a fool Alex looks, both him and his God. So there's actually stacks of, and we find more and more, archaeological evidence. The fascinating thing is that as we move into what seems like the decline of Christianity in the West, archaeological science, other documentary science, uh, is finding more evidence for what happened in the scriptures and earlier copies of them. So let's have a look at that. Weren't the books of the Bible written far too long after Jesus lived for the details to be based on historical fact? And haven't they been changed over time? We're going to have a look at the haven't they been changed next week. But uh, the, the best thing to say is uh, that we have some incredibly early copies of the New Testament. Amazing. And we find them more as archaeology is able to look. 
And so this was uh, a papyrus fragment found in Egypt in 1920. It was just that heyday. You can just, like, I'm just imagining death on the Nile and, you know, Agatha Christie and they're sort of, and they're, you know, well, what are we going to find in these stalls and some sort of shady character bringing out these uh, earthenware vessels that they've stolen from a looted church or something. Anyway, it's very romantic. <laughs> but here... This papyrus was found, and uh, what it was discovered to be was um, a, a copy of the Gospel of John. And it's uh, two bits on the front and the back. So it's from a book. Christians were, had moved really quickly, unlike the synagogues, from scrolls to books. And uh, you can see here, just a tiny, the words in yellow are the parts of the gospel passage, just like we would read, that were found on this that's been dated to like 150 AD. Found in Egypt, uh, which was not where it was originally written, but it means that a copy of a copy of a copy has somehow made its way there within mm, 40 60 years of being written. And uh, this incredible, I put what was on the back rather than what was on the front because I just, it blows my mind that it's that part of the um, crucifixion narrative where Pilate says, what is truth? And we have this tiny scrap of evidence so early and it says, what is truth? Well, it's a little bit, that, it's missing that bit, but you know. It's the same. Ugh, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> oh, that's the opposite, Megan. Come on. Our passage that we had read today was 1 Corinthians 15. And the earliest copy that we have of that was dated a little later. And this was a full uh, booklet that was discovered. And it included most of Paul's letters some uh, damage on the bottoms, they didn't have the full text and some pages had fallen out and um, the person hadn't finished the copy so we didn't have uh, Second Thessalonians, the pastoral epistles. Um, but it also included Hebrews which um, is really interesting to me because we now accept that as not Pauline, not, not written by Paul, um, but certainly in keeping this together they did. And, uh, yeah, it includes that early creed. It includes everything that we have. And it's, it's actually the opposite to say it includes everything that we have. What we've done is continue to um, make sure that our scriptures that we have in English are translated from the very earliest manuscripts. And so, once again, living in the 21st century we have the privilege of having an even better connection and deeper evidence than anyone who has gone before. So even if Jesus did exist, okay, and some of the historical stuff happened, okay, didn't the later church create this divine son of God out of just a special human being? Well, he was special, and it's wonderful for people to actually think that and be open to that for people to read the rich and unique teaching, to see his courage and sacrifice, that is really special and powerful. 
to investigate the radical nature of his interactions with people, the way he treated women, the way he treated lepers, the way people with leprosy, the way he treated uh, those that were enemies of the state, the poor, the outcast. Incredible. And then the impact of that on the early Christian community, how they showed compassion to widows, infants, uh, attitude to money, hospitality, ethnic inclusion, crossing tribal boundaries and resisting empire to the point of death. But I think what's behind the question of he was really a special guy but the church has kind of turned him into this god is the assumption that the church has done this because it's hungry for power. And let's be honest, the church has been hungry for power. But it's not because of what was in the Bible. Absolutely fine to admit the church has been super gross. But we're not actually looking at that. We're saying, well, what's in here? Or did people really need a comfort blanket? It was all right to have, I know, it was all right to have <laughs> a special man, but we needed something in between us and the vast emptiness of space and the futility of human existence. Let's turn him into a god. Well, I want to say that if you've read the New Testament... You would not be thinking power or comfort. I love this historical method uh, thing called the criterion of embarrassment. The stories in here, if they were written by a church that was seeking power, why would you include the disciples getting it wrong a lot and Peter, the first pope, denying Jesus? being called Satan, get behind me, Satan. Why would you include women who were not considered trustworthy legal witnesses as the first witnesses of the resurrection? If you wanted a powerful religion, why would you have a Messiah who died a criminal's death and it was gross as we saw? Why would you have insisted on a bodily resurrection that would become invisible after time to most believers after the apostles? Like, if you or I were making up a religion or shaping it, we'd go with a spiritual resurrection so that Jesus could continue to live in your hearts and anybody who felt that warm fuzziness could know that it was true. That's all you needed. But this is hard work. This is really hard work. Also, the possibility of contradiction, as I mentioned earlier, if you're writing close to the events and there are people who are still alive to contradict you, you better be sure that what you're saying is right. Now, we're going to talk about whether there were other texts that were suppressed next week. There's also a great consequence for those who sought power 
They ended up martyred, excluded, suffering for Christ. Now, in our day and age, we've seen a lot of people willing to be martyred for their faith, not Christian faith. We've seen uh, suicide bombers, people who are willing to do amazingly sacrificial things for a belief that you and I would say was misguided. The difference is that these folks, the apostles, would have known if it was real or not. These folks with the bombs uh, don't know. They weren't there. They didn't meet Muhammad. Um, These people did. And (laughs) if they had known it was a lie... They could have just gone home. When the moment of persecution and death came and they were being called to deny Christ, if they had known that actually he didn't rise, they could have walked away. But they'd seen it and they couldn't. And so I think the power and the comfort does not stand up to what we actually read in the scriptures. I'm going to finish with this final question because I think for many of us, the evidence is one thing and then it's our feelings and our observations is another. If Jesus was really the Messiah and was resurrected like we celebrated last week. Why does everything go on as it always has? If the Messiah has come and that was the great disruption that we were looking for from the Old Testament, how come time hasn't finished and Jesus, uh, God hasn't restored all things and we're not living in paradise? Much of what we read, experience, when it comes to evidence and proof, goes through our own feelings of hurt, of betrayal, abandonment, pain, jealousy, disappointment. And I would say, if we were looking at any other religious text that promised eternal life and paradise and victory, without a cross, then I'd have a really hard time believing it at all, even with all the evidence. But what we find in the pages of the Gospels describing Jesus is actually so incredible, so compelling. Like, I'm not, I'm not a kind of equilibrium mental health kind of person. I am up and down like nobody's business. And I am skeptical, and I was trained in, in high school as a scientist, and I find the arguments about theology disappointing and horrible and upsetting personally. And so for me, 
I feel like if there wasn't such a compelling, incredible figure in here, I would walk away because the feelings really come and go, really come and go. But Jesus knew all those feelings. Jesus, out of any other religious figure, any philosophical figure, any humanitarian figure, knew all of those feelings and then never gave up. And his disciples who went through the most disappointment and then the hardest life never gave up. And so for me, I know things do seem to go on much like they did before, except I know that they're not. One, we'd actually have no idea what the world would be like today if Jesus hadn't come. We have no idea of the disregard for human life. We have no idea. Like, that is big. But also, we're not there yet either. And Jesus didn't deny that. Jesus knew it would be hard. And yet he never gave up. And he gave us his spirit. So I would say the answer to that is, look into what the actual stories say. Look into who he is. And then see what he calls you to do to get to know him. Put him to the test. See if he, the evidence of spending time with him and praying and getting to know him and worshipping him and living as he's called you to live does change things.